HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network, and today our program is being sponsored by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market reminds you that every bite has a story. So whether it's a tomato, a muffin, or a T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods Market, every purchase you make helps support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, fair trade, and energy offsets. Think before you eat. Shop Whole Foods. Today on A Taste of the Past, as you know, we take you on a journey through culinary history. And a question that culinary historians always struggle with, it seems, is what is American cooking? And today's my guest is Molly O'Neill, who's going to help us answer that question, who actually has helped answer that question. For 10 years, Molly was a reporter for the New York Times and a food columnist for the Sunday Magazine section. She's the author of three cook, three former cookbooks, uh, I mean, four cookbooks now, okay? She's the author of three cookbooks, including the bestseller New York Cookbook, A Well-Seasoned Appetite, The Pleasure of Your Company, and she's the editor of American Food Writing, an anthology with classic recipes. Molly hosted the PBS series Great Food, and for all these things, she has won Julia Child Awards, IACP Awards, and James Beard citations for both books and journalism and television, as well as having been nominated twice for a Pulitzer Prize. Ten years ago, I guess it was about ten years ago, Molly set off for a journey across America, through America, to discover whether there is American home cooking and really what is American cooking. And I can't wait to hear directly from her what she found out. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Sure. Uh, so you said that one of the challenges you had in, in writing this book was how to do a demographically balanced portrait of, of American home cooking. I think you've done quite a job. Your new book, which I, I'm sorry, I, I was got so caught up in your other cookbooks, your new book is called, for those of, if I can't believe anyone hasn't heard yet, One Big Table. A Portrait of American Cooking, and this is one big book. So I think you've probably done justice to a, a, a balance there. How do you feel? 
about the balance? Did you, do you think you really got it to traveling across America? Um, I think that it's a good portrait. You know, America is constantly changing. I mean, the the one one thing for certain about American cuisine is it it's not yet settled. You know, we're a young culture, mm-hmm. and cuisine is not the first thing that cultures put together. Cuisine is something that evolves over a period of time as land is settled, and you know, economies and industries and homes and identity are forged. Well, now you say identity. I mean, America, obviously, as we all know, being unique to that um, definition of identity, and that is because we've been a, you know, a, a nation of um, open doors. Um, the immigrant culture certainly has affected who we, it forms, not affected, who we yeah, are. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I mean, I think that we have a number of, any culture has a number of things that are affecting how it cooks and what, you know, how people cook and what they eat. There is the nature of the land and the environment and the weather. What's it give us? What's here? That's the very first question that, that we see when, when explorers land in America. I mean, many, many, many of them were here precisely to see, well, what do they have here that we can take home? What can we make some money on? There must be plants. There must be different species that we don't have in Europe. And there was a lot of natural history and inventorying done by botanists and biologists. Um, the diversity of foods on this continent is mind-boggling. Well, it's true. And, we, and indeed, the New World gave so many foods to, to history that you know, people don't realize what they would do without. And you include a wonderful map in the beginning, of, in the, the front um, page of the book, of the um, the agricultural differences and and through the United States. In fact, there's it's what is it what does it say on the book? It says, um, okay, I wrote it down. The U the the United States. Okay, it's a wonderful book. <laughs> it's a wonderful page. Um, says the greatness of the United States is founded on its on agriculture. Yeah, now that map was made, this is a wonderful story, that map was made by the Armour Food Company um, in about, I believe, 1913, and it was distributed and used as a teaching tool. And what's fascinating is that the Armour Company is supporting and cheerleading American agriculture even as the company itself is establishing some of the earliest food processing plants in the country. Mm. And if you look at the map closely, what's hilarious is that along with, you know, the wheat, the cotton, the corn, the beans, the chickens, they put the um, their food processing plants right there in the field. Right. It's great. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, And, you know, it's interesting because you said it, it affects how the agriculture, the what the land has to offer, affects so much of what we cook. And that was one of my questions that I... I don't, I mean, you address it. The book is, I, I was surprised, it's not organized regionally um, from coast to coast, but more like a regular cookbook. You have your, you know, the meat dishes, the the fish dishes, and the dessert dishes. And then within each of those chapters, it's just this wonderful mix of, of, cult- of other cultures mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. have all been American. And... Many of those, and I was saying to myself, well, 
gee, you could actually have done the book so many different ways, too. You could have said how American food is derived from where people live regionally. Mm -hmm. You know, there have been a lot of regional cookbooks. And my feeling as a cook, when I pick up a book, I want to cook chicken. I don't necessarily want to cook a southern meal. Right. So if I find a fabulous recipe from the south for chicken, I'm going to be one happy camper. But if I'm wanting chicken and wading through a regional book where the recipes are arranged by region rather by ingredient or course, I'm going to get annoyed. (laughs) <laughs> and I hate annoying people. Right. Well, so we have the, you know, when we look at a cuisine, we've got the agricultural sense and the climate. Then we have fuel. How are people cooking? What are they cooking over? Um, in America, we had an abundance of fuel early on. We had more wood than you could shake a wooden stick at. <laughs> and this was very exciting to Europeans who had already deforested mm-hmm. and were tended to be cooking over highly heat-conserving conditions. So they could build huge bonfires here. They could have fires that burned for days, for eternity. And that shifted. That gave us um, certain types of cooking that we would not otherwise have seen. Then we have the ethnicity and the cultural kind of backgrounds of people who arrive. Then we have the interplay of those cultural backgrounds with with what is here. So there's a whole lot of things going on at once. And as America continued to develop, of course, we also had industry. How did industry shape how we eat? How did food advertising, food processing, all of these things shaped what we call dinner. And that's what makes American cuisine so exciting to me. First of all, it's a cuisine in process. Here we are, these hardy, optimistic people trying to figure out what is our identity in food. You know, France has had many centuries of a head start. Italy, all the Asian nations, Southeast India, all of these places have been in business as cooks for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years longer than we have. Mm -hmm. But here we are, this upstart nation with so much plenty and so much creativity and so much openness. Right. You know, you you mentioned um, Europe and, and how we are such a young nation culinarily and just, I think, a lot of us coming aware of, of foods in many ways. Um, you mentioned France and Italy. I heard you uh, make reference to American cooking as opposed to cuisine. And and I think that was a very important distinction you made, um, uh, that you said the cuisine, of course, being of, we think of France or Italy having codified recipes that have mm. endured over the centuries, whereas America is constantly evolving, as you just mentioned. And well, we're just not there yet. Mm-hmm. We simply have not codified yet. Um, we're we're much younger. Right. If you think of it, you know, we're less than three hundred years old. And that is just not a long time hmm. for a nation to get to get together, you know, certain dishes that are its own. Right. You know? Well, let me back up a little bit and um, talk to you, ask you about how and why you did this book, which I think is a very American thing, too, um, about how you first got into the idea to do this book. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I had done a book called The New York Cookbook, mm-hmm. and it was a portrait of New York at the table, and I I walked all five boroughs collecting recipes and oral histories from people. And I had no idea that the very collection process itself would begin to create the audience and the appetite for the book. But it did, and I was so thrilled when I saw what a community effort it was that I um, knew that I wanted to do the same thing with America. The The real problem was that I couldn't walk America. <laughs> so I needed... You know, I needed I needed to figure out how to get just as much diversity, um, you know, while traveling by planes, trains, cars, and boats, and um, that was challenging. Um, the sheer scale of America, the geographic scale of America, is daunting. Um, why did I decide to do it? Because it needed to be done, and because it was a work that I was born to do. I. I was born in Columbus, Ohio. I've lived my entire adult life in New York City. Um, connecting the past and, and the present are, I think, you know, basic human desires. Um, well, and you were doing some volunteer work as well um, with a project on uh, Feeding America, weren't you? I did. Um, I also, yeah, helped... The what was then called America's Second Harvest, now called Feeding America, the mm-hmm. nation's food bank, create potluck dinners that helped us gather recipes, gather food stories, connected me to people who really had wonderful stories to tell from their kitchen. Did a little, you know, aha moment happen then uh, with the potluck dinners? or Very much so. Um, you know, I'd been in New York long enough to have forgotten that New York was not the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and um, there was one there was one meal that that was done in Granville, Ohio, and the, the local football team built a table down Main Street that was a mile long, and the cheerleaders decorated at the local gourmet club gave a little cooking contest, and you know, I was up in a cherry picker looking down this scene with a photographer, and I, you know, I, I was told, you know, we've wiped out childhood hunger for a year in Licking County, Ohio, in this afternoon, and it was simply done with $5 donations. Hmm. And I thought, gosh, you know, if what I've learned so far can help me create these kinds of events, sign me up. Right. This is very, very moving. Well, that's Seeing why I say it's a, it's coming a, together. It was a very American thing, as Tocqueville always pointed out in in his writings. America's, you know, willingness to give and to volunteer. Mm-hmm. So, in your travels across this huge country, and fortunately, you didn't have to drag that huge book. <laughs> it is one I know, very it is big a book. For you walk around <laughs> in the kitchen with it. You don't have to go to the gym, <laughs> right? Um, but as you traveled across the country, was there? One area in particular that 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 stood out as having really adhered to a, a, a particular regionality, or maybe there were more than one region. Did it? Did that occur? Well, there are a number of regions. I mean, uh, overall, it, the South is the most intact regional cuisine that we have. Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think that it's difficult to find any other region that is as consistent, as durable, and as passionate about the food that is prepared and celebrated. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, and you 
also have mentioned that we are, as you said, we're, we're constantly evolving, and that we've undergone a major cultural shift. Um, I think you made reference to it as, as changing the map of, of how America eats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we've gone through a number of them. I mean, we're going through one right now that I find it fascinating, and that's that the most exciting things going on as far as uh, recently arriving, recently arrived immigrants are not happening on either coast anymore. They're happening in the interior of the country. Mm-hmm. And um, the the food scenes in, in Columbus, Ohio, and, and Charlotte, and Indianapolis. That's right. And That's right. Are vivid and fabulous and unexpected. And um, I was just in Columbus for a couple of weeks, going going through the these rings of ethnic um, little ethnic suburbs that were, and and I ate some of the best food that I've ever eaten in my life. Certainly, the best Japanese meal I've ever eaten. And um, I I was introduced to two very you know slender regional traditions from Mexico that I had no idea existed. And there I am in my hometown that I couldn't leave fast enough, by the way. Yeah, yeah, originally. Now now you go back and it's all changed. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, the New York Times just did an article on Indianapolis, how Mm, there was all this. Uh Right, yeah. And I think last week, was it last week in the business section, there was an article on Hyundai in in Kentucky, perhaps it was, and all this Korean food because Mm -hmm. of the influx Mm -hmm. of industry. You mentioned industry Mm -hmm. moving in. It's It's a wonderful phenomenon, and people are open to all these different cultural um, tastes and, mm-hmm. and changes. And for anyone who spent any time, any considerable time living abroad, you know that the one thing that you long for is usually a dish, food, from your home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so these people go and cook this food, and I think that's that's terrific. And obviously the recipes, the original recipes from their homeland are changed because of the abundance of things they find in America mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. tweaked and altered a bit. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, and you know, in some in some restaurants, certainly in the um, the sort of food truck storefront restaurants, in some of the higher end restaurants, people go to great great lengths not to make changes. Oh, interesting. And that's real. That's yeah, one, that's, that's where that's you really very get it. Interesting. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about American cooking when we come back after a short break. Seems like a dream to me now 
took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to the main course Sundays at 12 p.m. with hosts Patrick Martins and Katie Keeper. They examine issues from the interconnected worlds of agriculture, cuisine, and sustainability. They sit down with key players in the chain from producer to consumer, farmers, distributors, chefs, activists, and journalists. The main course explores every important component of the eating experience, how the farmers raise their product, the distribution channels that move the product, how the chefs prepare it, and how ethics and policy affect everyone involved. Again, that's the main course, Sundays at noon, on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, that Simon and Garfunkel song was for you, Molly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, we've been talking with Molly O'Neill about American cooking and what it is. And actually, you've done a double duty here with, with your book, uh, One Big Table, and that is helped us answer what is American cooking, kind of like nailing jello to a wall, but mm-hmm. what is American mm-hmm. cooking, and also tracing the history of American cooking. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's, you know, that, again, it's it's just this long timeline of whoever mm-hmm. came and what they started to do. You do include some classic American favorites in this book, which I just, I loved also, which I guess maybe we could claim is well, I don't know if you can claim it's truly American because you have pimento cheese recipes, the, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. cheese spread, and then of course fried chicken, um, many kinds, and barbecue, and the the ever popular green bean casserole, <laughs> mac and cheese. I mean, these are these are dishes we consider American, but then again, we could probably trace their roots to uh, other countries, right? Mm. Possibly. Yeah, I think that we could. Um... We, uh, there are very, very few recipes here that don't have some sort of antecedent. Mm -hmm. But a a lot of times, it's not a single one. You know, you see a lot of merging going on. And is macaroni and cheese Italian? Um, is it, is it industrial? Um, is it really the kind of German past, creamy pasta tradition of the Great Plains meeting the Italian tradition? Mm-hmm. Is it something all of its own? We don't know. Right. right. That's. I mean, that's what makes it so. That it makes it so unique in its own, and that's that's great. That we really, we don't we don't really know. But it's funny because you did mention in the book um, how a lot of people who think that these were family heirloom recipes probably some of them you said like the settlement cookbook you found traces you traced recipes back to the settlement cookbook or different magazines mm-hmm. does that really matter i mean it stayed you know they were from 1950 or whenever mm-hmm. they've stayed in the family all this time and they get changed you sure, know depending sure. on who's making them i mean that that's the one thing about the that a terrible word, authenticity, that I can't stand. Authentic to what? <laughs> right. You know, it, it, if food never changes, then restaurants are museums. And what's interesting is how it changes. And, you know, what, it, does it change for the better? Does it change for the worse? I don't think that all change is necessarily for the worse. And um, when you get into using a word like authentic, which has become meaningless because it's being used to, to mean bad, not yeah. real, yeah. not what it once was. Um, in fact, 
I, I don't know about you, Linda, but I, I've seen food get better in my lifetime. How oh, about you? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about it. And I think that just the, um, the choice, the education level of people who are um, eating and mm-hmm. serving food and making food and, and, and supplying food, I think that, as I say, said before, we are, you know, we have we're just continually changing and Mm -hmm. growing. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there was was a a question one time, I think that somebody put to you as, is food, using food as a class distinction? And I think maybe this was probably brought up in, in this new movement of, you know, organic or sustainable or, you know, where some people view this as elitist or not, or the types of food that are eaten, if you eat home-cooked varieties, is that, you know, of a lower class than if you eat, um, you know, gourmet meals prepared by some fancy chef? I mean, well, food's always, food's always been about um, distinguishing one class from another. In, in a society like ours, uh, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being a classless society. And in fact, that's not it's not true, and and so we use all sorts of silly little things to say, you know, I'm a member of the, you know, fast food drink Coca-Cola for breakfast class. <laughs> I am not a member of the, I am a member of the vitamin water class. <laughs> oh, well, I am a member of the artisanal water class, but wait, I drink coconut water. Um, there are all sorts of different signals that are being sent out in the food choices that we make. Um, overall, the you know, are we developing a a two class dietary culture? Um, we've had one for as long as I've been around. Mm-hmm. It's it's nothing new. Um, it it may be that we simply need to be more conscious of what we're doing. Um, there was a wonderful, wonderful critique of. Um, the sort of nostalgia involved in some of Michael Pollan's work on Zester Daily last week. Yes. And um, it really begins to expand the discussion of how do we make these decisions and why do we make these decisions? And, you know, what is the thing that matters most? Is it local food security or um, is it you know, global food security. Right. Um, I think, I think um, you know, safe food is, is one thing that we, safe and nutritious food is one thing that we, we want to keep foremost in our, yeah. in our efforts. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with generations to come. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. But I think we don't want to lose the joy. And, and yeah. you know, that's what happens when you, when something is politicized or philosophized or given a moral mandate, the first thing out the door is the joy. Right. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I love about food is that it's fun. It, and it tastes good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, take any one of these uh, these people who are trying to politicize our appetites <laughs> to a backyard barbecue, and everything flies out the window, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that one thing we can safely say. Um, I 
I just wanted, before I, I forget and have to close, I wanted to mention that for anyone who's in the New York area, you can hear Molly talk more about One Big Table, get a copy of her book, and taste some of the recipes that are in the book uh, this coming Monday, the February February 28th, at Edible Conversations. So if you just Google Edible Conversations, I think maybe there might still be some tickets left, not sure. But Molly will be presenting there. And that's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be a fun Oh, those video. are great. Andy yeah. Smith is wonderful. He does a wonderful job. And you yeah. actually get to sit down at a table and eat and listen to you talk. I mean, what what could be better than that? Gosh, I don't know. Do I get to eat too? I hope so. All right. That would be better. <laughs> well, you know, you... You mentioned that um, we were talking about how the education is is um, grown and and increased, and people just more aware of food and for better or for worse in some um, in, in some ways. But the especially with this with the new generation that's coming along. I mean, maybe we're seeing a whole artisanal movement, you know, come back again to where it was years ago, but. You mentioned that you think Americans truly believe that the best is yet to come and that we're far more open to change than other cultures that you've experienced. That's I think, true. I yeah. think it's a wonder that's a wonderful statement and I, I think that's a, a wonderful I think that's a wonderful statement of about America as well. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, we the more you change. travel the I at least for me, the more the more I traveled, the more impressed I was. I mean, listen, we've got some of the worst food in the world, and we've got some of the greatest food in the world. Mm. And we've got some of the scariest people and some of the most fantastic. I mean, we've got the, the best and the worst of it all. And um, it's it's always a delight, and it's always a surprise. You just never know what's going to be around the next corner. That's true. That's true. Well, we are one big nation, and... To represent it, it's One Big Table, Molly O'Neill's new book on American cooking. And Molly, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I just wish we could talk on and on, but I know people will be able to read as much as they want in that book. And um, and I could take excerpts from each one of those pages. The head notes of each recipe, uh, if you compile those, that would be a culinary history in its own. And I thank you so much for all the work you put into that. And again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, 
Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant. Nine times out of ten, when someone is taking the time to break away and do their own thing, it's because they either have a specific point of view or a specific passion that really sort of speaks to maybe not a mass audience, but the customers that I have and the customers at Barterhouse tries to culture and, and cultivate, I think are, are, are those type of people who want that story and feel like if they take a, an allocation of an 80-case made wine, that they've got something special and it's something that only they have or maybe one other person has. So that's kind of what we specialize in. And you know, it may not be business savvy to the nth degree, like we're not making 100,000 cases of Pinot Grigio and you know, flogging them all over New York. But the customers that get wine from us are kind of believing the same stuff we do, which is supporting these small farms, supporting these young winemakers who have a passion for doing it. And, and we supply them with a market and we allow them to get their product out there to otherwise an untapped uh, group of people.